this is Jason Albert, and you are listening to The Devin Kershaw Show from Faster Skier. This is our Touching Base in August episode, and as the season dictates, we'll begin with some banter about flowing water on the Colorado River. We'll also discuss Devin's start of medical school, but mostly we'll banter with Zach Caldwell and chat about some ideas to enhance the FIS cross-country broadcast. If you have any questions for Devin, you can send them as always to Devin at fasterskier.com. Okay, on to the show. How's it going? It's good. How's life? Coming back? Coming back to life? Yeah. Lots of emails and texts that I, I literally, I, yeah, as you can imagine, have really very little interest in sort of interacting with my phone and stuff like that. That's fair. No, but I mean, it was an awesome trip. Did you have a great trip on the Colorado? Yeah, it was great. It was, uh, it was kind of interesting. We, we actually thought of you a couple of times um, in the context of like, you know, I have lots of kayaking experience and so I know how to read water, but I think I told you like total. Uh, and then that trip we did with Noah was a little bit of a shit show in May on the Rogue. Yeah. I mean, I, I freaking pinned a boat. Yeah. 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 That's right. <laughs> he seemed chill about it though. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like, I, I mean, I was, we had to actually get out of the boat and move on to another boat and push the boat off the rock and like just let it float down. So I was like, shit, what am I getting into? But I had been told that like the way the Grand Canyon runs, like it builds into the big rapids, you know, maybe like a, the second day, second day is like, it gets real. Um, but it was doable. Yeah. And so I think you could do it. You're a bit freaked out. Yeah, but not like totally freaked out, but like I, w I knew I was just three of us the first week. So I just, I knew, yeah. and I was going to row, I knew I was rowing, you know, every rapid. So I just kind of, it was kind of one of those things that I was like, okay, maybe I need to go back and kind of tackle some big climbs because I got totally locked in, you know? Yeah, oh, that's sweet. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really good. And I, I like. Oh, that's a good feeling, though. That's a great feeling to be like in the flow state like that. And you know what? That's totally. The thing with, uh, that's the thing. What's awesome about climbing or skiing or, I mean, my my dad is just loves paddling. My, both my parents love canoeing. Yeah. And, and it's funny, like my mom is like freaked out of climbing or like heights, essentially. Like she really doesn't like seeing pictures of me somewhere steep or if she's on something steep, like in exposed it's like it's a no-go but then you put her in like i mean this isn't that hardcore but let's say like class three rapids yeah, everyone's canoe, got their threshold and, right and she's but she's totally comfortable you know like in, in a in a canoe in class three rapids like an open canoe like not no airbags in it or anything it's like no big deal she's loving it reads the water great and like i'm gripped you know what i mean like i always have been and i think it's like that it, it's, it's what you're comfortable with like that's what i always with water that the crazy thing is that, like what I always tell myself with climbing skiing is a little different. Cause once you point them down, it's you're, you know, you can be kind of committed, but you know, with climbing, it's, you can always, unless you're in like on like Nanga Parbat or something in a storm, but like if, if you're rock climbing or like scrambly mountaineering with like fifth class stuff, you can stop. Yeah. You can stop. If yeah. you're freaking out, if you're like freaking right out, unless you're like on the cutting edge or you're on your limit, you know, like, yeah, if you're at, if I'm like 
lead like i i mean i just haven't climbed that much lately so like if i was lead climbing anything it's, even if i was lead climbing 510 trad i mean i'm gripped i can't stop i got oh, like i got sure. like just because I, I, i'm but i shouldn't be there like that that's the that's right. the that feeling is like i shouldn't be there but if you're on an adventure climbing and you're within yourself you can you can you can hang for a second like like even a couple seconds just to like get your shit together and in a river you cannot do that like it's happening like you're you're like you can't be like i just need two seconds like i'm just gonna hang here for yeah. two seconds yeah and just like figure this out like in a river like you have no time yeah you have no time for that so that's yeah I, i feel that even though i've never done a big rafting trip at all but i mean i've done a lot of whitewater canoeing i think you should honestly like it's totally doable and it just became what I actually started really looking for because it's like pool drop. It's not like, yeah. you know, you got a mile. It's like you have kind of, a mi- you know, 20 to a minute of like big, like that was the thing. Like I had never seen water like this and it was yeah, okay, flowing yeah. really high because of the monsoon. And yeah. like the first sort of rapid you had to make a move on, you go in yeah. kind of, it's a back ferry. So you're going in backwards. Yeah, yeah. And, and you kind of get your stern in slightly slow water, so it spins you around, and then you have this great opportunity. You know, I, I knew I had made the move, but you have this yeah. opportunity to look at like the first big feature, and I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, and then, it, and then, but that's the thing, that's what I'm saying with like water that freaks me out a bit. It's like that moment you're describing, if you were off, like say you just like you missed it, you're committed. Like it's not like you go like, okay, Hoff, we got to take a second. We, I think I messed this entrance up a bit. Yeah. Like, nope, you're, you've, you've dumped your stuff's all over the river. Yeah. You're like in huge hole or some busy standing wave. Like it's a mess. mess. So yeah, no, that's uh, but that, anyway, but you survived, you had fun. Yeah. Well, you guys need to like, you need to go do this, dude. Well, I'd love to, I'd love to, you know, Hoff and I have talked about that. He's all fired up about it. And like I said, I've done, I, I'm used to doing canoe trips. That's what I grew up doing, but I've never done rafting. And I mean, if dude, COVID would me. just chill out for a second, just chill That's out true. for a bit so I can it's get on a plane happening. at some point, but it's not happening. It's just not happening. <laughs> so I haven't been on a plane in almost two years. Yeah, this was my first plane ride in two years, actually. I flew down to Flagstaff or- Yeah, yeah. think about that. It's definitely- Yeah, um, yeah. so that's it. Well, put it on your so, list and bring your wife. Yeah, no, I'd love to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, if she would, she, she'd shit. I don't, I don't know if she's got no, dude. Her, honestly, like- <laughs> Well, then we ought to do like the chillest one ever. Like, I don't know, like the, the world's chillest essentially like class one i i, I it's <laughs> doable oh she would freak out man like you know Kristen is probably more in for like any sort of climbing or like mountaineery kind of experiences she's way she'd be way into that but anything with water or like backcountry skiing same thing like she's just a not a great alpine skier by not a great that's me being charitable like she's she's garbage she's garbage <laughs> downhill <laughs> so so but she like on the way up she's not scared of heights and she likes the like she likes exposure and that sort of stuff but like waterman i think she, i don't i think she i honestly think i don't know what would happen she's um yeah no we've like yeah water's definitely like her 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 white whale it's uh she's not used to that that's for sure yeah it's scary 
It's scary, but it's not. A, I guess in closing, like it, like the canyon's worth it. Like it must be it's, so beautiful. It's about two hundred and eighty miles. Wow. Yeah, of like nonstop. Yeah, I thought okay, it's gonna peter out. It's gonna it's gotta peter out, and it's like that's so beautiful. Pretty much, there's maybe two or three spots where you get like four miles where it opens up slightly. Otherwise, it's like. 280 miles of full on in your face like that's crazy and how high are the walls like a thousand feet or something or more like huge it varies like the first part of the canyon is called marble canyon and it's maybe 60 miles long and it's like you can see the rims 5,000 feet above god no no, it's not dead vert but you have you got vert like plenty of vert right next to you and then it just sort of like kind of stair so steps cool. a little bit. Um, but it's, I, that was the thing I was like, uh, boy, um, it's, it's quite something. Yeah. You're committed to, have you, have you ever done like rim to rim to rim or anything like that? Like any hiking in the grand Canyon? Dude, I've never even seen it before. Never. I've never even seen it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen the grand Canyon either. It was cool. So, <laughs> so tell me a little bit about, you clearly are not in a, a lab right now. No, I'm at, I'm at, I'm in Lillehammer, but, uh, oh yeah, we're okay. full in. We're, <laughs> we're all aboard the medical school, the, the rapids. I mean, I'm in my, uh, I'm in my Great Canyon, but instead of, it could be 280 miles. I just don't understand what the, what the notations are. So we're, uh, no, we're full on, we're full on in Norwegian medical school here. So here we go. <laughs> yeah. I'm really excited for you. I know how much this has meant for you and was like, yeah, no, oh, thank you. No, it's definitely. And I'm like, I, I you know, it's not I'm, like for the, you know, I've got so many great messages through the podcast about physiotherapy and like people that worked in physio and like, they're like, they were excited because they love the the field. And it's not, I have nothing. It's not that I did a year of physiotherapy and was like, nah, not for me. It's just, my whole life, it's I wanted to, to study medicine even before I was a you know gave my life to cross country skiing essentially and and uh, it's been a long road and and like to do it in Norway is it's, it's just ridiculous so dumb for me as to do it but I'm but I'm a I'm a suffer pup so here we go we're doing it yeah I'm so, psyched for you it, yeah thanks thanks I'm I'm really excited as well and it's um yeah it's it's uh, it's it's no joke though it's not it's going to be quite when do you start battle. officially yeah. Oh no, man! I'm 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 way into this. This is I'm almost done week two really? already. So is yeah. it semi remote so, or are you just not? No, yeah. Well, right now I'm commuting back and forth. I not to get into the whole where you 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 don't find out if you're in till so late in the Norwegian system because it's a centralized. Yeah. You have this centralized admissions situation. So I didn't I didn't know if I was going to get in. To med school officially i mean i was pretty sure but uh you don't get an official letter of acceptance until like the third week in july and that's pretty tight and then we start like well it, this is my second week so um you know it, it just there's a lot of logistics to, to move around and stuff so as of now i'm commuting i'm spending a couple nights in the city or well lately i haven't had to but uh um yeah I have friends in the city i'm staying with when i need to be in the city and then commuting and yeah we're figuring it out but yeah. So we'll see. Hey, Zach. Okay. Oh, there he is. We're covering, it's going to be Dr. Kershaw from now on. No, no, uh, no, no absolutely not. Absolutely not. It is not going to be that. How's the situation in Canmore? Did you? Uh, yeah. So the, the house actually like Zoom signed 
um, a bunch of documents yesterday with a lawyer. So Sweet. my house is like, I don't own my house anymore. So that's that. How's real estate in Vermont, Zach? Uh, real Holy estate in Vermont. I, I, I can't afford to sell because I can't afford to buy. Yeah. yeah like, like, I'd be homeless. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's like, <laughs> sit it out, I guess. I don't know. It's insane. You'd have to it's move to Maine. Like west. <laughs> I mean, when, when well. we lived in Squamish and then Boulder, and when we came back, like the most ostentatious place we could find at $400,000 was... It just sounded, seemed so reasonable after four years being away. I bought my house originally, the, the small house that I still own in Vermont for $68,000. And I started fixing it up and we moved That's out. That's amazing. Oh, yeah, where you couldn't like, you couldn't buy a parking place for. No, for sure for like not. 400. You know, there, there were million dollar homes with like 30 year old rusting Hondas parked in the driveway. Oh yeah. It's insane. Totally crazy. And uh, then Boulder, Colorado, I mean, forget about oh, it. That's, yeah. the real estate there. Yeah. But uh, then we came back and it's just like, oh man. What's well, a little debt? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, doctor, you're doing it, Devin. You're going. No, I, I am not. <laughs> I promise you this right now. There's one thing you need to know. I am not a doctor, <laughs> but not even close. Um, um, it's 312 weeks of education. Two weeks down, almost. It's Thursday, so I'm not actually two weeks down. I still have tomorrow. So, 310 well, we weeks can- to go. We can round it. 310 to go. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, but it's going to be, I know, it's, it's going to be, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled, but it's, it's definitely like, yeah, as it should be. I mean, you, you like the anxiety levels are pinned right now. <laughs> it's like, well, congrats. Uh, that's awesome. That's thanks thanks a lot. No, it's thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty funny. It's a, it's going to be, but the whole, the whole Norwegian education system is, is pretty hilarious too, because it's just so objective um so it's like purely your marks and my class so at the university of oslo uh, their medical school there's 120 that started and there's 19 men <laughs> that's right really because yeah. men wow. were, were lazy <laughs> and we, don't, we just don't want to study and it's showing when it's like super objective when there's no interviews no like mcat to cram for and try and ace it's just 100 percent um, yeah, your, your marks essentially. And then there's like these point system stuff, but like, yeah, there is no men in Norway that either want to be doctors or can be doctors, or I don't know what's going on, but that's, and I knew that people had told me that before, but that's, that's a real, like, yeah, like I definitely, well, first I'm old as hell. Second, I'm Canadian. Third, <laughs> I'm a man. It's like, it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> so it's been, uh, it's been eye opening. but yeah, no, it's definitely the pace, the pace of it is, um, as, as you would, as you would expect is, is definitely, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're moving at a little higher gear, a little higher RPM than, than, um, the last few years. That's okay. Well, at least you don't have any other extractions like young children or anything. No, exactly. And that's yeah. not like I live Every, like I'm sitting here. Simple. Li- yeah. At least I'm not living here in Lillehammer and going <laughs> to medical school in Oslo. Right. Right. So, right. That a, would be in insane. a pandemic, in a pandemic, <laughs> like that'd be crazy. So no, but there's some moving parts that we need to to figure out. But as of now, it's yeah, it's been uh, it's been pretty full on already. But not not uh, not unmanageable. I'm talking to you guys, so I'm not that I'm not that stressed about it. <laughs> this is like therapy, though. Yeah, that's true. Well, throughout this winter, it will be therapy, Jason. So be careful. Yeah, we'll get Zach on for it too. Jack Zach comes with some tough love, which is always appreciated when you're going to like. Sometimes you just need that, you know. But for now, I'm pretty chill, so we're good. 
Congrats. That's, that's ambitious. That's incredible. Yeah. Thanks. We'll see. Just the biggest, the biggest takeaway is in six years, wherever I am working, don't be sick or injured there. Cause <laughs> that, that's my advice to you. So like, if you're going to get sick or injured, just, and you're coming to Norway, Zach, you're definitely in Norway often or when there's no pandemic and J- Jason's got to come ski touring. So that's fine. That's going to be on our off time. But, it's on my yeah, that's going to be, that's going to be an off time, but like, just, just take a quick text me first, ask me where I'm working and then just like avoid Somewhere that else. area. Yeah. And then you'll be, you'll be fine. <laughs> you'll be totally fine. <laughs> what about team doctor? That sounds like a cush gig. Yeah. Except for the job by the time I'd be so goddamn old when I'm done. Uh, yeah. Maybe travel with some teams. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Actually the advice I got too, with like specialties or stuff like that, like things that you think about is just some friends of mine that have gone through medical school. It's like, they said like, write down what you think you'd want to do before you start medical school and then see where you end up like almost like a little time capsule. It's always really, it's always really interesting. Cause I mean, you, until you go through your rotations and everything like that, like you really actually don't have an idea of what it is that, that, uh, all these specialties do. So I'm looking forward to that. That's, that's a long way off now, but too, but still it'll be exciting. Zach, how old are you? You look good. Uh, what did you say? You look great. Got a little facial <laughs> hair going. Yeah, it's been two weeks since I shaved, I think. I, I'm 51, and I'm, my beard's starting to come in. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I got maybe a year and a half on you. My, my, when my <laughs> beard comes in, because I have red hair, or I used to, it's a little gray now, it looks like dirt. It's like kind of dirt mm. color brown. You gotta let it go. You just got to let it right go Viking mode and just... I tried to let it go during the river trip, and I just, just look like weedy. I look like a Just tool. weedy, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's there's no Viking in me. <laughs> Ditto. Yeah. Ditto. Yeah, me neither, so we're cool. Okay, here we are. And here we are, midsummer, dog days of summer. Yeah, it's look like first cold like sub one hundred degree days in what seems to be months here in Bend. I'm wearing a vest, so winter's nice. on the way. Enjoy it. It's pretty good. Okay. So I see that we're all kind of in the dock here, in that Google dock. And um, I know it's been a long time. <laughs> We've discussed doing this show for a while and, you know, thematically uh, sort of just like talking about interesting ideas in how to generate or create a, 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 a better product for viewers, for instance, when it comes to the World Cup to kind of keep this semi-organic and not, but we'll, we'll kind of, you know, roll with this idea of, and again, I look at you two as kind of the experts. I'm a a technician here in terms of how to record and that kind of crap. But the general theme, as I mentioned, kind of how to create something that that is presented a little more effectively, excited, you know, people are excited to watch it. It's not simply like your hardcore fans that could care less. They'll watch it in Russian. And, uh, And maybe that is the market though, who knows? Well, you have to take care of that too. And I think that's what's so interesting about all these debates. And this is not just our sport that's talking about that. I mean, like if you like the Olympics that just happened, the Summer Olympics in Tokyo, um, I'm a fan of climbing and, and you know, this was climbing's first time in, in the Olympics. And, the, you know, there's so much back and forth and they came up with this like convoluted like triathlon essentially where you had like speed climbing, bouldering and lead climbing. And, but they only had one set of medals to give out for each gender. So then there's a lot of back and forth and then like, how's this going to work? And they pick something where essentially you just like multiply your results together. And then the person with the lowest score wins the medals. 
And of course it was weird and, and it was exciting in some ways. I think it worked well for the women and for the men, maybe not quite as, maybe not quite as expected or, or whatever, but, but that's, that's the kind of thing like no one that the hardcore climbers aren't going to be happy that have been following this forever. And it's like speed climbing is the worst. It's not climbing. I don't want to have anything to do with this, you know, but they also need to be pulled in to be able to enjoy the the product I, I, with, it, with climbing where I'm going way out on a tangent already. It's like, of course, everyone is excited because it's their first time in, but these are the kind of the growing pains that are going to have to go with. And in cross country skiing, what, what I think is tough is like, just to open up the conversation. And we talked about this back in the winter, but like, it's like you have to kind of move with where the people are going and what's exciting and, 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 you know, shorter loops and, and, you know, more spectator friendly, this sort of stuff. Of course you, you, you do, but at the expense of the history of the sport. And I'm, I'm not like curmudgeon old, like trad dad that was watching climbing. That's like, what, what is this? And so, so I realize that it's tough, but I mean, I think uh, you have to be able to find a balance that most people are happy. You know what I mean? With changes. And that, that's, that's tricky in any sport. And I think cross country skiing is, is, you know, we've, we've been, it's been a challenge in cross country skiing. It remains a challenge and it's definitely not ha- helping that you have one country that is dominating like, you know, I guess the Russian women in the late nineties dominated like this. And the Norwegians at certain times have dominated, but, but right now what's happening with the Norwegian men's team uh, is, is just like, it's obscene. And so you're up against that as well. So you have format issues and then you have like one team with the most funding. It's like the Yankees, but like, it's not just the Yankees uh, in their prime. It's like, it's hard to describe, I guess like in, in football and European soccer, uh, PSG is trying to do that by getting messy and stuff there and everything, but it's, it's like this super team and it's, but it would be like creating. the Yankees if they were given free license to develop their own bats. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. And then the, and the Yankees could like, they were the ones that could, you know, use tacky substances on their hand. The pitchers were allowed to use like that, those tacky substances on their hands uh, and no one could hit it because the, the spins they were able to do were just like obscene. Like essentially that's what's happening. And and at the same time, Fist is trying to like change all these formats and come in with new races and new loops and this sort of stuff. And it, it just, it, yeah, it becomes, uh, well, at times it's been a mess. We can all agree. We can all agree on that. Um, that, that with the growing pains, we haven't been able to like totally pull out of this tailspin quite yet. And it's, it creates a challenging situation, I think, to move forward. Because like we talked a little about this in the winter, but like, like think of something like the Tour de Ski. This is something that happens every single year that becomes a challenge. The fist leadership is pissed because none of like, especially on the women's side, top athletes prioritize the championship. And you're going to come up with that exact same thing. This year is going to happen again. The Olympics are in China. It's a pandemic. Who knows where that's going to go um, when the tour de ski happens around the new year. And, and what's changed other than like, the same grumbling every year, but they've done nothing in the schedule or discussions with the teams or anything to try and make that a more marquee or more, it is a marquee event, but to make it more doable for, for this, for, especially for the top women to come, like, you know, Teresa is not going to go to the tour to ski or most likely Frida Carlson, Kala, like these people want to win Olympic medals and, and you know, it just doesn't make sense. But so I don't know. It's a cha- there's there's a lot of challenges like that. All right, the Olympics will be gone in another 
couple cycles and then we'll be able to focus <laughs> on skiing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If it keeps going like this. I think so. Yeah. I think they're, I think they're in their death throes. I mean, well, yeah, it'll, you know, momentum will carry it for another couple of Olympiads, but I, I don't see it continuing. I mean, it's gotten so irrelevant. I don't see it continuing given the decision making patterns they've got going on. Yeah. Well, the leadership in the IOC is just the most insanely oh. depressing oh, it's thing of all time. But, but, you know, but I, you know, I hold out a little bit of hope that the summer Olympics are going to Paris and then to LA and then to Melbourne, I guess. So like, yeah. like maybe they, maybe they can, maybe LA, like I, 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 I kind of hope that LA can put their foot foot down kind of thing and, and, make it a little more sustainable than it's been by the, again, like who knows, it's not, it's not even like the host cities have much say, honestly. So it's, uh, I'd be, I agree. This is going to be challenging, but right now we got Beijing coming up and, um, it's at high altitude. No one's seen the venue. And I've heard a lot of people, I went on to ask Zach about this because like I've talked to a lot of people about it and they're like, it's kind of like split. Like half of the people are saying like, Oh, it's going to even out the competition that no one's seen the venue because they haven't been able to test on the venue and see what the snow is like exactly. And that's going to actually even it out. But then I've heard the other side. It's like when you have a bunch of uncontrolled variables, who is going to be able to come in and exploit that advantage more than the Norwegian machine? I mean, it's, it, you know, and it, so it's, it is true. It's interesting. And you know, there's some, um, well, this is happening right now. And I don't know if it's uh, well, it doesn't matter. I've also heard that, there's a lot of discussions that are taking place right now that maybe the the industry may not be allowed to come in to Beijing. So if you're listening to this like months later because it's the summer and you don't want to listen to a podcast, uh, this might be completely bullshit by then. But but yeah, I've heard I've heard like companies, you know, like Swix, the ski companies, um, they might not be allowed to travel with their with their it, I, hard to call it an armada in cross country skiing, but with their entourage to the to the Olympic Games and. For those people at home that are curious, like about ski selection, because I know we're going to come into that. Like, I don't know if you have this experience, Zach, but for me and our team, some of our best skis that we race on for years are skis that were given to us at the Olympic Games. Oh, with so like, Fisher in particular. Yeah, and I they show up Fisher at major championship. They show up at major championship. With, with they the know rest. those. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, know. They're incredible. Yeah, they know. They've done their homework, and they know that those series, those runs of skis are freaking amazing. And I mean, I can attest to that, you know, I raced four Olympics and, and yeah, like the skis that I was given at those Olympics are, are something that I compete with for, for years. So, and if they don't show up, if they're not allowed to show up, it's just going to be interesting. It's just going to be another added development. It's going to be, yeah, we'll see what happens. So I'm curious, like the rumors, and I don't know if you've heard, I, this is the first I've heard of that. Is that a function of like, it's COVID and they're just trying to minimize the number of people? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That's what I've, that's what we, that's what I've been hearing here is that um, the Chinese have been after Tokyo was done. They were, but this, none of this has been published or anything. That's why I say like, you just take this for a grain of salt, but, but there's uh you know, it's scramble planning for these, for the industry too, because they were expecting to go to the Olympics and yeah, of course have to deal with COVID and, and try and take precautions and stuff. But you know, the, the world cup went off kind of as planned, honestly. Uh, so, you know, the industry has no reason to believe that this year wouldn't be at least like last year. And then now all of a sudden you have um, the Chinese government or whatever the, the Chinese Olympic committee, whoever's in charge over there of the Olympics, like this has been tabled that like 
don't expect to take your the industry here. And a decision, I haven't heard that a decision has been made one way or the other, but still, this is something that really affects the, I think can affect the, the outcome of the games, maybe for smaller countries. What do you think, Zach? I think for smaller country, countries in particular, you know, let's take the U.S., for example. They don't have their own grind program. They don't have an off-season ski testing program. Of course, this has limited the number of techs that can be on site for the major countries. But I'll tell you, if I was one of those major countries, I would be conducting a massive off-site testing program to screen skis and, and uh, try to move through material. The smaller nations really depend on being able to walk into that Fisher cavern and get competitive skis you know, they're ground and they're ready to go. It's like, you know, an hour on the wax bench and you can put them in the race and you're pretty darn sure you've got skis that are equivalent to the best out there. And, um, man, without that, I don't know. That's, that's a, that's a big hit to minor nations. Yeah, exactly. And I, and the, the thing with minor nations too, cause you bring it up, like, it's crazy to say this cause I'm old enough to remember when they were like a major powerhouse, but take Germany, for example. So if you have someone like Henning, you know, who, who has like in classic, I mean, she has podiums on the world cup. Yes. She's a dark horse, like a, a serious dark horse, even for top five, but she has proven that she's been able to race in the elite level in classic. In Venice, yeah. We, yeah. Yeah. But still, but we know as much, but we know as much how important skis are in classic as well. And now all of a sudden an athlete like Henning, she, she's going to go to the Olympics and that could be like, I know it sounds crazy for people that aren't, haven't been in that, but you're like, Zach is not overstating it. Like some of the skis you get at the championships from Fisher are so freaking good. You're laughing. You're like, how is this possible? Like we've gone through 50 pairs of skis this year. We've tested, we've like grinded stuff we've been doing. And then I just get handed this three pairs of skis and two of the three are my best skis. And I'm racing on one of them at the Olympics. And to lose that, that that's going to, that's going to be tough. Can you give us a, a little bit of insight into Zach or Zach? Like, how is that possible? I have no idea, but they're always working. I mean, this is the thing about the ski industry that's so it makes my job really fun because it's engaging and fun to communicate with skiers how much constant striving those guys uh, put into marginal improvements in the product from one year to the next. And the development cycle is so tight. They're bringing stuff to the world cup and it's, it's really like, you know, a couple seasons is showing up on store shelves and the skis just keep getting better. It's relentless. They're discovering more and more about it. And in the world cup, the top brands are all watching what each other are doing and taking the cues. And there's like a really, really high ceiling um, that's been defined by this, this competitive circuit where everyone's looking for that, like, you know, they want to bump right up to that ceiling and it's just, it, it's, it just moves, moves everything forward incredibly. And the, the bummer is that you got to be right at the front of it all the time, but yeah, they're, they're refining, refining cambers, they're refining layups. They're, they're just working it constantly. There's a lot that goes into skis. There's a lot on the inside and, uh, there are a lot of refinements to camber shapes and the ideas that drive them. Uh, the stuff that I thought I knew eight years ago was useless at this point in terms of really identifying the best skis. It's, it's pretty cool how quickly it moves. You take that and you compare it with ski poles. You could win a world cup on eight year old ski poles. 
ain't going to happen unless it's a really special pair of skis with, uh, with the skis. Especially in skating. And that's, I wanted to ask you about that too. I mean, like in skating, it's weird. Like, I mean, I've, I've raced on like the oldest classic skis known to man. Like you see pictures Mm of, of, uh, Mar Birgen when she was active, not that long ago, you know, like four years ago, four or five years ago, she's racing on skis that were like 15 years old. But if you, if you really take a close look at the skate skis, everybody's racing on brand new skate skis. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. How skate skis from year to year, like if you look back like four year old skate skis, unless they're just something like incredibly magical that, 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 that let's just call Olympic cycle, let's say from yeah. one Olympic cycle to the next, the skate skis that are at that next Olympics are just, it's the feeling, the stability, the, the speed on them. It, it, it just can't compare. It's great. It's weird. Even at a domestic level. I mean, collegiate racing, you, you barely see four year old skis holding up. You know, like they're just the, the new stuff that's available through general production is better because the technology finds its way to the market really fast. So I want, yeah. And I want to ask you something about that specifically with skate skis, cause we've had a lot of debates with this on, on our team. Is it, is there something about like, how, how would you suggest people at home to store their skate skis? Cause we were saying like, do they slow down because they're so they're, they're way stiffer than a classic ski. So if you'd like just no one can see me because it's we're talking on a podcast but if you squeeze your skis together in a skate ski it's it's a way harder to compress them together than it is a pair of classic skis of course because uh, you don't need to you don't need kick wax you don't need to actually like get any grip with them um but we were thinking like is if is it a function that like from year to year skate skis quote unquote slow down or feel more dead is it it has this anything to do with like how people are storing them because you know you think about like ski ties storing them with ski ties uh, so where they're connected, like at the tips and the tails, and even though it might not have that much pressure, it is, would that change camber over time? I mean, like temperatures and stuff, no one's, we're not storing skis like people store fine wines here. I mean, like most people store skis in, in ski racks in the garage or, or in ski trucks that are left wherever. And, you know, at, do you think as do you think it's a function? Have you ever tested that? Like do, do, do yeah. camber, do camber heights or do cambers change over time with skate skis or no? Cool. I think it's more material changes and it really okay, just on the technology. Skis. I mean, so, uh, you know, a lot of skis still have, I mean, Fisher still relies on wood sidewalls. That's where most of the structure of the ski is and it's wood and it gives them a really unique feel and they've tested other materials, but they can't reproduce the feeling of Fisher skis without using wood. And the skis are very, very long lasting, but not at that really, really peak level of dynamic response. And I think, you know, as opposed to just measuring end flex or camber height or, you know, pressure zone location and movement and, you know, tip splay and release angles and all this stuff. Um, when I'm looking at skis, we spend a lot of time looking at the dynamic properties of the skis and I'm really trying to figure out how to, how to quantify the, the damping characteristics of the material, you know, you start working with mountain bikes or, you know, anyone from yeah. sports will really say, Oh, like performance is all about damping. And what I can see is the skis with a lower, um, well, I should say a higher level of damping, slower material response, which I would say fishers tend to have tend to do better with a lower resting camber and a lower overall throw. And it has to do with 
coordinating the timing skis that are really high naturally and very a lot of uh, long throw spring a really high dynamic response you need more rapid materials um i think when you when you look at the the feeling of a ski that's died off i think you lose some of that dynamic response and and maybe the the materials just uh lose some of their elasticity you start putting energy into heat instead of getting it back yeah Interesting. That's, that's super fascinating. Cause I, I, and then of course, like not, not just with those, how the materials are reacting to just aging, but uh, like you said, you're right. Like the engineering and the testing that goes behind the scenes to, to the R and D with skis to, to improve them. It is, you know, even though there's a lot of things with cross country skiing, are like pretty old school. Um, and even with skis, I mean, like you go into a ski factory sometimes, it's like, there's some things that are just like so high tech that blow your mind. You're like, whoa. And then there's other things you're like, like, it's like, am I in like Dickens London here or something? Like this is old school, man. Like no wonder there's so much variability like this is, so it's like a real blending, but I, I think, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. What you just said. The variability piece is a good one too. I've had conversations with people, um, where they're scathing about the inability of the industry to reproduce really high quality uh, objects. They're like, oh, you know, composite industry is so advanced. Everyone else can reproduce this stuff. But when you're just trying to build light and stiff, it's one thing. Bike frames, functionally, yeah. the, the amount of variability in the layup and the way they pop out of the mold doesn't have that big a difference. They can build in different amounts of flexibility and damping by changing the layup and the wall thickness and the geometry of the frame. But functionally they all land in the same place so that you end up with 10 identical frames at the end of the day skis have camber camber is the secret of skis and to be really clear like if i go somewhere to pick skis i'm not picking constructions that's all drawing board stuff that gets decided by engineers at the outset and built into the skis it's baked in and functionally from a material standpoint all the Skis are the same object. The difference is in the camber. And that is so refined and so delicate that it's make or break. It can totally change the character of the ski. And it's really, really difficult to control and reproduce cambers exactly because literally hundreds of millimeters of camber expression can change the way it feels on the snow. Oh yeah. And that, I, I can attest to that having tested like Oh, way too many pairs of skis i got that what you just said zach is just right on and the funny thing about that too like you were talking about like the construction we don't need to go way deep into the weeds with like how fishers are constructed and stuff but i also find it fascinating so like all the ski companies and all the athletes are are into this like in the, the that's kind of like the magic sauce of this whole thing is like to find a camera that works for you works for the snow conditions blah 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 but then the funny thing is is like even though everyone's looking at each other, trying to take the engineering from each other, you know, it's like any other industry that that's competitive. I mean, Adidas and Nike, you look at what happened with the super spikes that are at, like with Nike. And of course, what does Adidas have now? They've got super spikes. Puma's coming out with crazy stuff, working with McLaren and stuff like that to, to make track spikes. Um, so it's not a surprise that the, the, con the companies look to each other, but I do find it fascinating that what you just said with Fisher, you know, using wood on the sidewalls, they're going in that direction or they're like, they're committed. They're like, this is, this is the best we got. And then you have a company like Matsus or whatever, that's like foam core and like really kind of like monocoque construction type thing. I mean, that's dumbing it down, but for people at home to think it's like a Fisher is kind of like a wafer type construction. And then you have Matsus. It's like, 
even though they're trying to like come to the cutting edge, come back, get better equipment than they have. I mean, they had medals last year at the world championships. We can get back in that if we want to spend time on it, but, but totally different, totally different insides, but they're all chasing the same thing, which is that, that magical feel of that camber, that like how important that stuff is and how hard it is to measure and how hard it is to replicate. And Matsus, for example, will tell you that they can make, they were making pairs. We are making pairs of skis. It's highly engineered. And, but like fishers, like they're making skis and then pairing them afterwards. So it's everyone great. does it's that. A, everyone, everyone does that. Okay. No, the, the, okay. the difference with Matsus is the, that's every, amazing. Every ski in a series from Matsus comes out of the same mold cavity and gets pressed by the same exact press. So yeah, the right. reproducibility okay, that, is very, very high. Whereas Fisher has multiple mold, mold cavities and presses in use. Okay. Certainly general production. I imagine they probably control it much more tightly in the development department production yeah. that you're seeing on the World Cup. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, but it still is everyone pairing up skis afterwards. In general production, in Spain, Rosignol, I understand from talking with them when we visited in France, they're they're producing their their mold has three cavities. So they, they press three pair, three skis at a time. Yeah, that's crazy, hey. <laughs> that's so trippy. But and, it's, just again, manu- it's just manufacturing. I mean, there's always yeah. there's in all of these because of the variability of the camber. There's so much human value added as part of this process. Yeah, yeah, of course, people of course don't understand, and the companies that get that part right and and have created the pathway to deliver the right skis to the end user. Um, they're just all right. to skiers. Yeah. And then that's the funny thing too. And uh, you know, that comes in, it bleeds into something else. It's like reputationally. Cause I know that maybe there's younger skiers or like family or like, hopefully not too many cause I'm a little too profane. So, but uh, if there is younger athletes that are listening and they're stoked and you know, want it, there's that age old question, like in North America, there's just this thing like, like Fisher skis are just more consistent. Like you, like if you're having to buy skis, if you're not a world cup skier, getting Fisher skis, you have a better chance to get a good pair of skis. And my personal opinion, I want to hear what you think, Zach, but like, for me, when I hear that, I get, I'm like, that was 20 years ago. Like, I don't think that's the case anymore. And I, I'd like to put that to bed. And we've, you know, we spent like 15 minutes now, like talking about talking about like the ins and outs of like manufacturing the skis and stuff. But like for young people at home, honestly, you can get great skis from Matsus, Rosnall, Solomon, Fisher, the chances of getting good skis. This is my opinion is the people that you're working with and that are picking your skis for you or your club or that sort of thing that has everything to say but what what about pelties? except for pelties sorry finland sorry but they did get a world junior gold medal sorry, they did get a world in. junior gold medal in the sprint he went to solomon sorry Pelty. i'm sorry <laughs> well, i think you're exactly right Devin. i mean i i uh my job has ter- has changed in the last decade from trying to identify non-rejects to trying to find the specific camber qualities that are going to really fit a skier's needs to the point where like I have conversations with skiers and sort of canvas them on their athletic history so that we can actually start to define what range of dynamic properties we want out of the skis to match that skier's motion pattern and background athletically rather than just like, Oh, this is a good pair and this is trash. You don't want to, ever see this they're they're mostly good pairs i mean you go into a shop and you pull a pair off the wall some brands may be slightly ahead of others but man they're not a lot of bad skis on the racks at this point in time they have every company by necessity because they've all been working at it they've all had to keep up 
they're all making a much, much higher percentage of good skis. And my job's gotten way more fun because I get to look for that, that last couple percent of like, I, I don't like to call it fitting the ski, the ski to the skier. Cause it's not that simple, but matching skier quality and dynamic property. That's uh, really cool. It's a great, a great thing to be able to work on. Yeah. And I think that's just so cool too. And I think like for the parents and, and like buying the skis for their kids and stuff now, like, Oh, am I, that, that is a huge relief. Cause I mean, yeah, the variability that, that was in skis production, like not that long ago. I mean, I'm dating myself here, but yeah, like 15, 20 years ago, like it was, it was crazy. If you weren't, if you weren't on the world cup, it was really tough to find skis that were competitive. Really. You really had to dig. Yeah. So, even, tw- even 2011, 2012 was still like, there was just a lot of stuff out there that kind of was junk. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's great to yeah. hear from, from that perspective. I've, I've been curious about that for a long time. So that that's great to hear. So the takeaway is no matter what, brand is you can find good skis you just have to have the right people helping you um identify what it is you're looking for 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 the conditions that you're most likely to ski on um so one of the things let's start like this was number one for you and it kind of piggybacks a little bit on what we were just talking about it was ski feet ski fleet limitations and there's a lot to unpack there um but let's start there that was one of your suggestions zach about how to make this I'm guessing more competitive. Yeah, if we can back up just a fraction of a second, I want to make two points first. One is that the sport is highly technical. It's defined by these amazing athletic performances, but everybody involved in the sport knows full well that it is equally defined by the performance of the skis and the service teams and the product that they put on the snow. When you watch the the coverage of the sport and the way it's presented to the public, they kind of ignore that as though it was a totally level playing field. And it's just not, it's a lie. It's a really interesting story and embracing the fact that there are these potential massive differences. um, is kind of my starting point that like, Hey, let's tell the whole story. Let's give people access to the inside here. And then let's, explore the idea of uh, putting some limitations in place that create incentives that benefit a really broad-based sport. When I say broad-based, I mean skiing has a lot of participants. If we watch Formula One racing, there are not a lot of participants. And it's really questionable whether that technology ever trickles down to general automotive technology, right? It's so far removed. And yet um, that broad-based piece of it means that there are a lot of people who stand to benefit by the way skis are produced. And one of the factors that we have right now is this situation where there's no spending control and, you know, any, any nation can spend any amount of money on, on stuff. They can carry as many pairs of skis as they want. And the companies can work directly and exclusively with nations to produce skis. And, um, some of what they're producing can be so specialized and specific for venues or competition formats that uh, it doesn't really serve broader needs. In point of fact, that happens relatively little. I think Devin would agree that it's like, yeah, he didn't have special sprint skis or no, 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 you know, no, generally speaking, 
it's such a chaotic environment. You know, the sport is conducted outdoors and it's different around every corner. So the, the solutions need to be fairly robust. Um, but, but the, the upshot is that um, the incentive is to always achieve the pinnacle performance and then to give the pinnacle athletes access to the pinnacle performance. So every company is trying to make the very best pair of skis and get it onto the very best athlete. And what I started thinking is like, okay, what happens if we say, hey, every athlete only gets eight pairs of classic skis for the year. And, and then to select those eight pairs, their service staff gets to look at a pool of skis that get, gets brought by the company for testing. And the worst nations get first crack, which incentivizes the company to make the entire pool of skis at as high a level as possible. So trying to raise the level of the average rather than generate one pair that's going to give Therese an extra 30 seconds and 10 K. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting, it's an, it's a really interesting idea. Actually. It's like, it's like taking an American draft, like a, the NBA draft or something. And the teams that are in the, that bombed the season before, I mean, they get, they get the first dibs on the, the best prospect. I, I never thought about that before. That's an, that's an interesting, uh, if you get the companies on board, I think, I think that could be like actually like a spectator thing of itself for like the hardcore fan, honestly. For sure. For sure. I mean, if, if the, I'm going to say the fist, maybe it would have to be someone else, but if, if the whole thing was produced, even just for like a, an internet type audience, if it was like, you could subscribe to the background and, and have access to the televised, you know, testing procedure. And I mean, this is the other thing about the sport. I mean, it's all so closed door. They should, oh, they yeah. should absolutely put, put TV cameras in every wax truck. It should all be, you know, it should be part of the show. It should be, yeah. you know, should, yeah, I agree. You know, maybe because a blackout love period. Oh, it's, it is the sport, you know, and, and showing that and, and the ability to tell that story, um, I think would really make the sport more accessible and better understood way more compelling to watch, especially all if right. you follow up with metrics on course about like whose skis are gliding fast downhill. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that part too, like, I mean, in Canada, of course, like people l- like wanted to come into the wax job to check it out. But like the years that I work with the Norwegian team, like, and these are Norwegians, like these are like hardcore fans. These are like people that live in the Bronx, you know, they know baseball, like they they're into it. You know what I mean? So they're, but to see these people's eyes, like coming into the wax truck in each race venue you're at. And you know, the, yeah, some of them are sponsors and their families and stuff, but there's also like, people, you know, when the day is over and stuff, if there's people hanging around, like coming in essentially to the wax truck as you're packing things up and like kids and dads and moms, they're just like, what, like, what is going on in here? Like, this is crazy. Cause it is crazy. It is part of the sport. I agree. Like, I think from a production standpoint, the teams need to be better about understanding that they are, you're part of a, a product really. And those technicians and the, 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 the things that are happening in there is part of the product. And I think, you know, Fist, like, I mean, I know Jeff Ellis back when he worked with Fist was like involved in like trying to get this idea of like behind the fence and stuff like those uh, web videos up and like love him or hate him of those web videos. I'll, I'll leave that aside. But I think it was like, that was a, a good step. I think it was a good step to try and come in, but you look at the views on those behind the fence videos. It's like, this has no following. I don't know. Like it just had no views, but people are watching NRK SVT, um, the Russian 
channel. <laughs> I don't know if it's an RU or, or what it is over there, like which channels show skiing in Russia, but Finland, like Wiley, they, they, they watch it, man. Like people watch it and Euros, Eurosport is all over Europe and, and they showed the races live. Um, so instead of just like making like a YouTube kind of like a uh, vlog essentially from fist that no one watches, this should be, I agree, Zach, like that's a great idea to like put this into the production and then put money and production value into telling the story. And uh, you're right. Like the technicians and we have to adjust everyone in the industry has to adjust and guess what now Norway or guess what Sweden or guess what Canada uh, in, in the, in a, in a chaotic period, there may be cameras coming in. How much, fun like, would it be, how much fun would it be to, uh, to like tag team commentary for the pre, the pre-race show that runs yeah, from like totally. two hours, two hours out with feeds from all it, the trucks to yeah, you like, can make it awesome. Yeah. You could make a really good production. Yeah. And cool. imagine, yeah. And imagine in a day and, and because this happens more than people realize, uh, at home that are just, like you said, watching the product, like. It, it, like you, you mentioned previously, like it's an outdoor sport. There's a lot of variables. It's like, it's impossible to control. How many times have you been in a wax truck where like half an hour before the race, you're like, our classic skis are dialed. And then it starts raining and you're like, Oh God, <laughs> like we have hard wax on like all these pairs of skis. And now all of a sudden the mist that was just kind of misty and wasn't called for any rain. Now it's actually like it's raining for real. And there's half an hour before a, a skiathlon's happening and you have to adjust everything. No viewer, no fan is seeing the backstory of the, the shit show that is happening to get this, to get this out the door and on the snow. And I think if, fans were taken into that journey they could also understand a little bit more zach what you're saying when you see like teresa gliding away from everybody or or yeah that's a great example it's like norwegian skis that are so much better it would be so cool to see like how are their systems maybe their systems are just so much better when it starts raining and then if that was shown that could be something that yeah pundits could talk about and be like wow but also other teams could learn from perhaps so that, that's a that, that interesting idea. I've never really thought about that. And I think it's, uh, that'd be so fun. I mean, but you know what the other thing with that is like anything, it takes people with knowledge to produce that and commentators to commentate. Cause if you just like take some like journalist, like some hockey journalist in there and like, he's trying to follow along what's going on, like it's not compelling. So, so it's, you'd have to really build up a, a good production team, but it would be, I think it'd be super interesting. I think it'd make the sport more fun. And, and then, so to get back to the fleet limitation thing, I think that if, if you go through this exercise of, you know, giving people the ability to select their, whatever, eight pairs of classic skis, eight pairs of skate skis could be whatever number, make some rules. Um, but then you, you radio tag them, you put RFID tags on them. And so the, the production team actually knows what skis are on course and they can tell, Oh, this grind has, this RA value and, you know, they reground it last week because they had to, you know, they had to submit the, the, re yeah, right. and, yeah. you know, these are the, these are the flex values from the company and, and, um, you know, get, get it. Here's the base material, um, get into being able to work with the information a little bit. And at the same time that that's happening, that you're starting to tell the story of the technical element of the sport in the background, the technicians, the wax companies, the ski companies are all having to create the best of average rather than 
win on a home run, yeah. you know, no, it's and, true. and that whole process serves the interest of the general public and it creates yeah. incentives and models where kids aren't going to their ski camp and hearing that the top athletes in the world carry 70 or 80 pairs of skis. It's like, yeah, yeah it's like, it's like 10 to 15. That's exactly. And the, and, and the other thing too, is like, it does a number on your confidence. I know it does a number on Canadians confidence and, and, you know, like, uh, Americans too. It's like that, that plays into like your confidence is like, Oh man, like, isn't then there's this thing that's happening. It's like this self-fulfilling prophecy that's going on. It's like, Oh, Norway is just so much better. Oh, we can't beat Norway. Oh, they got, now they got a, today's a hundred pairs of skate skis. And yes, yeah, she does. But like, like, that's not why she's kicking your ass necessarily. It's helping for sure, but it's not why <laughs> like, um, but then you kind of, you, you create this narrative, this like kind of loser narrative really. And that's really hard to get out of as a program. And I think to, like at first, when I first read the comments about like ski fleet limitations, of course I had that devil's advocate, like my hackles up and be like, this is ridiculous. This isn't going to happen. Hill, you mentioned like, well, you mentioned something else to, to really get in on it, but like, yeah, like essentially like chipping the skis. So it's like, there's no, you can't screw with this. Like the manufacturer chips the skis. So you can't really cheat. And then you could do it almost like the silly season in, in European football where you have like transfer windows and stuff where you could right. be like, you have, cause they, cause we do that. You know, that all, you know, all about sure. that selecting skis in the spring, selecting skis in the summer, selecting skis in the fall, selecting skis before the championship. But instead of doing all those four runs, maybe you just limit it. And it's like, there's a selection period and it's in October. And then you have a selection period at the tour de ski or just after the tour de ski is done. And that's it. And all those skis are chipped and yeah, you can grind them as you want. You can put whatever wax you want on them, but it, they're, they're like, there is a microchip in there that like you, you can't come with like other skis. Fit, like, do you know what I mean? If they're all registered and databased. And then I think it would help the confidence of smaller nations to be like, like well you know what yeah maybe they're better grinds and like their waxing teams more knowledgeable and their people that are selecting their skis are more knowledgeable but that that may be true but the fact of the matter is you don't have that like feeling of inferiority before it even starts by going like oh my god like Teresa's technicians are testing they she travels with 100 pairs of skate skis but her technicians are testing like 300 pairs a year and like i can't compute i've got 10 pairs of fisher like won't give me any skis. I get four pairs of skis from Fisher and then I have to pay 200 euros for every pair after that. Like I can't do this. And I'll, again, like the narrative. So I'm coming around to it. I think, I think it'd be fun. And if you filmed it well and you discussed it well, and you interviewed the people picking the skis and you tell the stories, there's a lot of like quirky dudes and like back there picking skis and they all kind of come at it from a little bit of a different way. You know what I mean? Like the Norwegian guys that I know well come at it a different way, but like you have like Italians that have their thing and, and Swedes and, and everyone has a little bit different personality. And yeah, if you made it like the silly season in, in European football, it is to be like, man, this would be a huge thing. I think it'd be really cool. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I think that'd, that'd be, a, I like it. I like the strategy. And then, and it's actually not that hard. I agree with you. Like fist, they're like, they're not going to do it. Like they're not going to be able to do it, but if oh, you get a feckless bunch of yeah, idiots, they're not going to do anything. Exactly. No, exactly. But if you, but that where is what is kind of positive with it is the beauty of skiing being so small in a way is that you do not have that many ski companies. So you really just have to get Matsus, Rosinal, Solomon, Fisher on board. I'm probably forgetting something. Rosie, did I sell Rosie already? Anyways, yeah. there, there's like a, there's, there's like a very finite uh, 
amount of ski companies that make elite skis. And you just need to get them to sign off on this. And, and what's it do for their budget? They didn't have, no, have no. to make how many fewer skis? Like, no, but maybe they're making more. Maybe they're making skis to test. Maybe, maybe they're still making the same amount of skis, sadly, just to try and like refine their engineering so that those skis yeah. that, that get picked are like just insane. But the fact of the matter is, it also gives them more exposure too, because this becomes a story in itself, right? Yeah. So this becomes, so, so, so the exposure, if you produce it well, it, yeah. Like, I mean, the, tra- like, the transfer window is a great example. I know it's not because it's more not to, it's people instead of equipment, but, but I mean like the, the transfer windows in European football, it's like, I can't, I, I'm, I can't turn my head before getting slapped with media about like rumors of who's going where and what's happening here and this and that and the other. And like, you could, you could create the same kind of thing in, in, uh, in skiing and you can make a fun story that people could follow along. And then the fallout is like you said, um, you have just such a better, psychologically the athletes be can under feel like well Teresa's is traveling with i keep saying Teresa, but like holand's traveling with 20 pairs of skis or bolshenov's traveling with 20 pairs of skis and guess what so am i and and um the people that are the worst uh the worst like we could put limited to the red group maybe like everyone has to have the pick skis because i'm just saying like you, you don't want to give like i'm sorry this is where i push back like you don't want to give the guy that's 80th in the rankings first pick of the skis but you can give the guy that's 30th in the rankings the first pick of the skis do you know what i mean mm-hmm. so but everyone has to be on chip skis and that's just how it is like you right. can't be even if, yeah, I mean, if, you, if you come into the world cup from the outside your skis are i mean most companies are already putting chips in the skis yeah yeah exactly there, you know yeah, so exactly uh so you come in from the outside you just scan your fleet into the database when you check in yeah. and that's yeah. those are your skis yeah, exactly. No, it's a really, really interesting idea. I mean, fun little thought experiment to run. I think it'd be interesting. I think, I think it would, it would give a lot more confidence to the smaller nations for sure. And actually it'd be interesting to know what it would do to like the big nations too. Oh, they, they know they have to spend the resources, you know, no, they- I know, but still, but still, it'd still be fun. It'd still be fun. Cause you know, these athletes are used to like having, and the technicians, mostly a lot of the athletes are checked out really, but like the, but the technicians are used to having like the pick of the litter and having that litter being like, infinite so it it would it'd be a big change Uh, that's a great uh, that's a great idea do do you think a a country could monetize you know they'd have to get some sort of legal agreement with the fist or whomever tv production you know it doesn't take a lot with a couple of iphones and some gopros and whatever to broadcast uh to monetize like hey here's our wax truck we're gonna have live audio and you pay 25 bucks uh you know, a season, whatever to watch it. No go. I, I think, I think you need the context of the whole thing. I think it's much more interesting when you see the differences between different nations, the culture emerging, and you see the way the groups are working together. Yes. I think uh, just one team being like, this is how we do it is a lot less compelling than having access yeah. to the whole picture. What, what do you see is, I mean, obviously, well, not, maybe not obviously, but it's a, it's a culture kind of mired in, well, it was done this, you know, sort of like the medical field. Oh, you're doing a, uh, you're working 80 hours a week during red, residency and it may not make you a better doctor, but it's the way it was done 20 years ago and you're going to be doing this yeah. too, Dr. Kershaw. So, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. what's the aversion or what do you see as some of the hurdles to like uh, the changes we're, we're talking about? And, you know, when, when I do watch a ski race beyond the shorter circuit, you know, it not a lot has changed. Uh, 
let's just call it a decade to 20 years. Yeah. Here's, here's a fun, interesting thing with that too, Jason, because you brought something up that I think like the, mo- the monetizing piece of it, I think where you get teams more on board for changes, is it just like, it's time to prefer- professionalize the sport a little better than it has become. It's something called like profit sharing. You know what I mean? Like you're the product. I mean, the athletes are the products, the teams are the products, the, the, the coaching staff, the technicians, the whole circus. But, but the way that we, I mean, we, we don't need to go way into that. Cause we, I mean, you can go back to the last time we chatted in January, wherever that was. And we got way into that, but like the way the production is set up with this is like, it's a nightmare. And, and if you could just streamline the production, tell better stories, and then have an incentive that like, if you are a team on the world cup, you will see a share of the revenue back to you. I think that would make a huge, because then you're a shareholder in the whole thing. The teams want them, the the team, the teams would not just want to win races, of course, but they, they want to grow the pie. They want to, they want to put forward a product that is more interesting and better. And then maybe you'd be able to move the needle a little bit. You're right. Inertia is a thing. Like, you know, people have been doing something a certain way that the ball just kind of keeps rolling like on its own necessarily. And people don't want to change, but, but I think if you want to, Institute change, you can say to, to the teams and the staff, it's like, we're going to change the whole production structure. We're going to shoot out the old production structure. It's, it's ridiculous. And you're going to see kickbacks from this, like monetary kickbacks, and you're going to be a part of making this product better. And if you could do that, I think that you get, a, I think you'd have a lot easier time of getting everybody on board personally, but it'd be, it'd be a huge lift. Of course. I mean, God, like like you said, like everyone's just so used to watching the Davos World Cup on like I don't know the the, the Nokia or sorry like the, like the Motorola Razor, you know what I mean? Handheld Motorola Razor on that stupid like Z Hill, like uh, Colonia Stutz, like that. That's what we're all used to. But I mean, it doesn't have to be that way. So I think I think that's one way you could do it. Yeah, I think uh, profit sharing and and coming up with the structure and then and it, but it, you know what at the end of the day too, like you said, Zach, it's sad and kind of depressing, but like it's, it's leadership. Really. You need people in, in a leadership position. You need people to have a will and a vision. And, and then also, also thick enough skin to, to stand in it. Cause like, yeah, people don't like old Europe doesn't want to change. Like they just don't, but you know what, if you can incentivize it a little bit, maybe, maybe that could be a, a step in the right direction. Who knows? Race format. That's something that came up in the notes too in this document and thoughts about how to modify, um, you know, what we might see on the schedule. So, uh, Zach, do you want to take the lead on this and how you might begin formatting a calendar that, again, like sort of at its base, like makes the product compelling uh, for viewers and for racers for that matter? Yeah. Normally I like to have really pretty positive suggestions. You know, if I'm going to be critical, I want to say we should do it this way because these are the problems. These should be the solutions. Mostly here. I just have complaints. Um, Mass starts are stupid. Does, you know, the, the tactics in mass start cycling are super refined and it's a compelling sport if you know what you're looking at and it's really cool, but it doesn't even happen that way in skiing. There's no drafting effect that's sufficient to, to generate that kind of tactical response. So it tends in tends to turn into this kind of like March and then the overwhelming incentive between skiers on the course is to obstruct someone else 
because you're fighting for the finish line. In an individual start, when two skiers end up in the same place on the course, they share a common interest. Someone is already ahead by a, by a margin that's like pretty indisputable, 30 seconds at least, right? So these two skiers are together, one's leading by 30 seconds. The person who's been caught knows that if they contribute to that effort, they can get pulled to a really good performance. And the person who is catching um, knows they're already ahead and they don't have to defend against this, this other skier. They're basically, they both have a strong incentive to, to get along and hurry up. Um, so you see these really compelling start to finish athletic performances in individual start races where I believe you see like just better athletes performing at a higher percentage of their capacity. You don't see the sprints. You don't see the total turn of speed. So you can't just get rid of all, all fast, which parts of the sport, I'm not suggesting that, but the over, you know, how many, how many individual start races do we have left on the calendar? And is there even one that's not just a 10 or a 15 K? Um, I feel like some of those long individual start races have amazing storylines and they're just really badly told stories. And there's so many tools available to TV production to make those compelling events. Um, so that's, that's kind of what it comes down to from my point of view. I have a huge issue with uh, the sprint format in that on the men's side in particular, there simply isn't enough room on the course. It's a sport of, of interference and uh, obstruction. That's, that's basically all it is. And there, I have to concede that there are skiers with the talent to rise above that. Um, but like, it's not that fun to watch, honestly, it just like it's defined far more by uh, ruined opportunities than by great performances. Um, yeah, it just kind of sucks. I, I don't have a good suggestion for changing it, uh, but I don't think it's very good. Devin probably can be a little more upbeat. No, yeah, without uh, interesting, interesting points. I mean, I like especially like well, because like the, I think with the mass star racing that you have like there's two things that ha that are happening. Like one, the men is the men's is just totally you, you you're you're absolutely right. Like it's a it's a march. Like we're just kicking back. You know, Sunby really changed that when he came online really in like 2013 by like just demoing everybody and just splitting it like just shattering everybody into small groups. And in that in that era, it was uh, like more interesting because people were just hanging on for dear life. And it was, you saw, if you just watched like mass starts in 2011, 2012, and then watch it in 2013, when somebody just decided like enough, uh, it's, it's crazy. It's, he changed the sport completely, but we're, we are moving back down towards, like you said, like now, if you, if you watch the world championships or even the mass starts last year, we are definitely like coming back to like, uh, coming back to that now, you know what I mean? Like where it's, well, it's, and it's, 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 it's just like, it's like, but then in the women's, you have a different problem, which is like Teresa just shatters everybody's legs in three minutes and then you can just turn it off. It's over. And, and so that's not really that compelling either. So, but, but here's the thing I think with, with the mass start formats or this, that, the other, what really bothers me is in cross country skiing, we're so quick to ditch history and, and instead of like creating a festival style attitude. So for me, you, you look at Holman Colon, okay? Holman Colon should be two 25K loops, 
like the original, like what well, I mean, I know back in like the 1800s is 150k loop, but let's let's just like call it what it was. You have so much room in Norway, in Nordmarka, like where the trails are. You can have a ski to Lillehammer if you want. Like, so two 25k loops, individual start, and it's a party. And, and like, I know every year, like, the, like our papers are just like, the Norwegian papers are just like, this is just out of control. Good. It's great. It's out of control. Let, young people are out on the ski. Yeah, they're not really, they don't really care about the skiing, but there's a lot of people on Alpe d'Huez that also really don't care about the bike racing either. And I think it highlights the sport that it's fun. People are out in nature, partying their face off around a ski event. That's great. And we should have like historical races like Paris-Roubaix, Tour of Flanders in road cycling. I know I'm jumping around a bit. Like people get stoked about this. Fans get stoked. People that watch it live get stoked. It's a festival atmosphere. Everyone knows it's going to be hell. They're not, t- they're not paving over the cobblestones because like it's faster. It's like, no, they're like, this is part of the, the hell is part of it. And two times 25 K loop in home and colon, the oldest like world cup 50 K around. And now just the last one, there's only one on the schedule every year. Let's make a big deal of it. Triple the prize money. Like, you know what I mean? Make it a huge deal. And, and I think that's the thing Fist has missed a big time is like these legacy venues that are huge. Falloon even, it's not my favorite venue. Uh, for, I mean, I skied really well there, but, but it's just, it's grown into a festival style attitude, uh, atmosphere as well. Find a race like in Falun, it used to be the 30 K that was like a kind of traditional world cup event in, in Falun. And then they've gone away from it. Now there's like mini tours and like Falun's changing every, like all the, every year it's like different races there. That's too bad. You have some legacy venues that we should like, these are parties. Like these are huge fun parties. Like you're saying, Zach, create a good story about them and have a legacy event that's there that people can look forward to on on the schedule and then tell a good story around it. With the sprints, your point about the sprints is like, I struggle a bit because like in one sense, I agree with you. Like the obstruction is out of control. It's crazy. But what, but what I also blows my mind is Claybo finds a way. And before Claybo found a way, when Janssen, Emil Janssen was at his best, he finds a way. It'd be five Norwegians in the final and Emil Janssen, somehow Emil Janssen wins. Like that, that shouldn't happen in, in an obstruction mess. It, it, it really shouldn't, but he finds a way. I, remember, I really recall the years that Ola Vigen Hadestad was at his absolute best. And like, I, I almost want to go back and watch those events again, because like there was so many times where like, there is no room. There is one spot of that course that Ola Vigen has put himself in a bad position. If he wants to get around, he has like two seconds in a three minute sprint to make a move in that two seconds or he's knocked out in the quarters. Somehow he always makes that move every time. And it's always like, you know, I have been on both sides of that too, making really stupid decisions and end up on my ass or getting knocked out in the quarterfinals and being all pissed that I was like, I'm boxed out. And they were, they got, got cut off or like got pushed or like, and then I was also one of the people that did the pushing and the obstruction that, like in my career too, but the best, the real legends of sprinting, I don't know how they do it. I wish I could bottle that and sell it. Like, cause it's, you know, I wish I could bottle that and sell it to guys like Bolger. You know what I mean? That seem to be like, they're so fast. They're so good, but they always seem to be caught up in, in like a mess. And there's just some guys that always are caught up in a mess. I don't, I don't get it. But so I do see what you're saying with it. I think the sprints for women is really exciting though. Super good. Great racing. So, and, 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 and they're not, that's what I'm saying. And they're not, being, just... and they're not being, and they're not being as obstruction. It, it's more like pure, like, like I, I don't see the same level of, 
obstruction in the women's field that I see in the men's. But I, I just see more room to move on the course. Yeah, yeah, they exactly. Just don't take There's, up the same yeah, amount of space. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They don't take up the same amount of space, and they're going a little slower. Yeah. Um, and but for the men, like I, I want to agree with you till I, till I just say like I mean I've been my jaw has hit the ground so many times with Claybo, and and Pellegrino, you know, where sure. you're just like, how in God's name did you get around there? And, but they do. Yeah, and it's, te- it's tempting so, to say it's also just a sport for the big guys, but you look at Pellegrino and Claybo, and yeah, neither yeah. one of those guys are – No, they're, no. They're not on the big no, side. Those are the small guys in the field. Yeah, they're not how to stat. They're not how to stat, exactly, yeah, or, yeah. or Shanava. No, you, know? you, have to give, you have to give those guys credit for really defining what it can be. It just so often isn't. Yeah, and I do feel – but I do feel – I do understand because there's a lot – especially North Americans, there's a lot of – there's a lot of North Americans that get caught up in, like, I don't know. It's like accidents all the time, but I, 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 I want to say like, yeah, there's not enough room and it's just, ugh. but then, but then I see guys making it through every time and I'm like, they're just better. I mean, toughen up buttercup, find a way. I don't know. But same thing with the sprints too. Same thing with the sprints. One last thing with the, with that is like, we have some, try and create a story. I mean, there's been a lot of talk that when sprints first came on, there was like small sprint tour. Like a sprint, like a three, like a three sprint tour kind of thing where you had like three venues and think about like, um, uh, the four Hills tournament, maybe it'd be cool to like, try and like come up with like a sprint trophy, but like make it a big thing, like pay more prize money, produce it well and try and get something going. But at the same time, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of spitballing as I go here. Cause like, that sounds like a good idea. Till it sounds like, isn't that what Fist does all the time? It's like, now we're going to invent a team sprint. Now the sprint final is going to have four people. Well, and then one year it's going to be four, pe- six people in the quarter, five people in the semi, and four people in the final. And oh, no, no, that's all. we're going to bring thirty people into the qualification. And so, like, and that's what we lose fans with. We, so, if you had a sprint tour, you could start to play with the formats. I mean, the problem now is you have a really discrete number of events. There's a limited number of opportunities yeah. and everyone needs to sort of learn it. They kind of yeah. tweaked it a little bit by, by giving people their choice of heats according, yeah. Yeah. you know, that was interesting. Okay. That yeah, was a really, really a positive change, you know, and yeah. that was, that was good. But like, what if they were to really change the event format and um, like for qualifying set up a qualifying window. Say it's a 20-minute window. You can start and finish a lap anytime. You're taking flying laps. You'll get called on obstruction. That's you can go crazy. out and get a draft yeah. from a teammate. Oh, like, dude. why not? Go out there, find your window. Like, you know, like get a, get a clear track and, and get your lap in yeah, and then like crazy. look for a better opportunity. But like, what, I mean, you could, you could do so much just by looking around at different formats used in different sports and being like, really does it have to be one every 15 seconds not televised not told like we don't even refer to it and then you know we we televise the heats and nothing else and it, it just or, it's it's so limited in what story they're yeah. trying to tell or even like criteriums like think about like like just like yeah. local criteriums where if you had like a 10 lap race and that you know you, you have some qualification and then the 10 people go or, or 15 people go to the the, the, the the actual world cup and then every lap the last person through the lap pulled yeah, like that may be pretty. That that'd be pretty fun too, and you could make some. You, yeah, I agree. You could you could you could definitely mix up some stuff with that. And but, and I, I think Fisk should should explore some of those ideas, but at the same time, build up your strong legacy events, and that is what's bothered me the most. Is like they they gut and they cut down their legacy events 
too quickly and too easily. And it really bothers me. Like, like it, it, like, like Holman Colon being a mass start every year, every year that it's been a mass start, it just deeply, deeply bothers me. You don't change the Boston Marathon. You don't change Perry Roubaix. Like, I know there's some like minor tweaks every year with Perry Roubaix or whatever, but like, do you, you know what I mean? Like center court at Wimbledon is center court at Wimbledon. That's what it is. And people tune in and they watch the final because that's what it's about. And like they have the, all the story, all the backstory and, you know, NRK, they still try to tell the story, like, you know, leading up to home and colon, they still try and bring in that old footage and show the old champions and that whole thing. But like, it's not that anymore. And that sucks because like it didn't have to be, you know, we, we so bring it back. That's what I say. Legacy events. And then some, don't be afraid to try some new things that are a little, like a little, um, a little more unconventional. But again, if you put a profit sharing and change the production of it, then every team has like an incentive to make the best po possible product instead of the way it is now where you sell the rights to each individual rights holder in each country. And then they, <clears throat> they want to, they want to maximize their own profits. What's easiest. You, mean, you think you might be able to get a World Cup relay with more than seven nations on yeah, the start exactly, line? Yeah, exactly. And that, 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 but that's the thing. Like, why are we doing that? Like, that's exactly. So, I don't know. Now, there's lots of, uh, lots of good stuff in there. All right. Thanks, folks. Well, I'm glad everyone's doing well. Yeah. Well, hopefully for those that are, like, itching for winter, can, can get out on a mountain bike or on a run or, or something. Or, like, if they're doing some hellish commute, like I'm rocking, uh, sit back and dork out to some Nordic skiing. And it's great to, great to catch up with you again, Zach, and we'll pull you back in here. It's always entertaining conversations. It's fun. Good yeah, to see thanks, you. thanks for having me on, and good luck with medical school, Devin. That's, uh, yeah, thanks, man. That's terrifying. Glad I'm yeah, glad no, 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 <laughs> no, there's still tons. Yeah. yeah. No, there's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is terrifying. All right. Thanks, folks. Have a thanks, great guys. day. Thanks, guys. Take it easy. Yeah, have a Bye. good one. Ciao. Bye. Thanks for listening to this August episode of The Devin Kershaw Show.